Hi, and welcome to More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. I'm Amanda Nystrom, the Chief Operating Officer at Command Prompt, a leader in open source excellence since 1997. We hope that you enjoy the podcast today and contact us for your Postgres and full stack needs, including 24-7 support. Find us at 503-667-4564 at commandprompt.com or at sales at commandprompt.com. Enjoy. More Than a Refresh is brought to you by Greenplum Database. Greenplum is a PostgreSQL-based, open-source, massively parallel database for analytics, machine learning, and AI. A VMware technology, Greenplum is a modern database that isn't limited by your data size or vertical scaling limitations. For more information or to get in touch, visit greenplum.org. Welcome to More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. Our guest today is Laura D. Benedetto, an ammunition manufacturer and an award-winning author. Uh, you know, Laura, we were talking about uh, helping people be better, basically. Uh, you said that, and I had asked you, do you think everybody can be an entrepreneur? And you had said that on some level, and it's not, you know, we agreed that there are cogs, right? Uh, people that should be treated well, but they're part of the machine that moves forward. Um, but you had said also that entrepreneurship means a lot of things. Sometimes it's like yourself who has six different interests. And then there's someone like myself who, you know, it all my, my life generally runs through one company that I created in 1997. So can you continue on that thought about, you know, what do you think you said that people are sovereign, they have a right to be wealthy, not, and, or at least a right to attempt to be wealthy, mm -hmm. uh, to be entrepreneurs. Follow, follow along on that. What, what else do you have to say in there? Sure. Um, I think the term cog is a little maybe not amazing. I think that's what a lot of the ruling class, I would really begrudge the okay. term elite, I don't agree with it, but the ruling class they would probably want to position us and have us be cogs in their machines, except we're not. And, and I actually do believe that everyone has the ability to be an entrepreneur, but maybe sometimes they, they need help, or maybe they could, you know, write a book or they, they could be the person that does like yard sales. Maybe they do it part-time or maybe they get a business partner and, you know, then they have someone that's good at certain things that they're not good at. So, um, you know, when we think about entrepreneurship, oftentimes we think of just, you know, maybe the, the person that's just a solopreneur, that's an option. But the, their other options include people who have great ideas and they want to monetize them or sell it to a big company or they want to innovate and create something huge and create jobs for others. And, you know, the, the United States a long time ago was founded by a bunch of rebels and 85% uh, of the population uh, at the time that America was born was um, all entrepreneurs. It is normal to be an entrepreneur, actually. What's not normal is sitting in a giant concrete box with 10,000 other people in a gray fabric cubicle and pretending that you're not capable of more than that. That is the lie, that's the aberration. What's normal is us doing our own thing. And I mean, think about it, you know, we used to have the bakers, the cobblers, the blacksmiths, and people that provided a valuable service to other people. And the, the rise of automation and the industrial revolution actually changed things and meant that 
we needed more people to come together to create things like a Nike or, um, you know, a Dell computers or whatever. So we could actually bring these incredibly big, big ideas and products to life. But it came at the expense of the individuality of the individual entrepreneur, the individual family, where maybe there's a family business. There's been a decline in that. I mean, ever since pandemic, uh, a lot of entrepreneurship is coming back, which I'm super excited about. Um, but it's still really weird to people. And it it would be really cool if we could help to change that and um, to borrow a phrase from the left to normalize it. So the, you know, it's interesting you brought up the pandemic and, and, and entrepreneurship. So um, I'm on a six month road trip right now. That's why I'm in the woods. Fun. Um, yeah, we have a, a school bus that we travel around in. Um, and we, we converted ourselves the whole bit. But one of the things that we see, because one of the things that we try to do as we travel is we try to support only local. And we, can, we can't that. do it for all things, but we try, right? We, we try to find the farm stand for the eggs and the meat, and we try to buy from the local uh, wine store or whatever. But mm -hmm. this is something that we've noticed because we've done this two years in a row. Last year, we did it for 13 weeks. This year, we're doing it for six months. Mm -hmm. And we have seen the distinct difference in downtowns. It doesn't yeah. matter if it's a metropolis or if it's a 2,000 person village. It used mm -hmm. to be you go to downtown, and unless you're in the middle of nowhere, Texas, right? There was always a little mom and pop. There might be a little pharmacy, there'd be a cafe, usually a couple yeah. of bars, the whole bit, right? Yeah. Well, now, even in the places that are coming up, there's a lot of boarded up windows. There's a mm. lot of, we used to be here, but we're not anymore. There's a lot of signs that says we couldn't survive the pandemic. And mm -hmm. I agree. And I, I actually agree. I also see the other side of it. Uh, you know, we've been in North Carolina now for two weeks and we've been to Williamton and we've been to Asheville and Maggie Valley, all these places. And mm -hmm. more people are coming back. People are starting to start their businesses again. Um, and those types of things. But I, our, our company has been remote for a long time. So it didn't affect us the way a lot of people it did. I know it affected you deeply. I've read a lot of your posts about it. But it seems to me that the pandemic, for all of the bad, the one of the things that it did beyond, how can I put this? I, I, I don't want the NSA to like delete this yeah. remotely. Um, <laughs> uh, it seems like the pandemic, the, the, the way that we managed, the government managed the pandemic crushed a lot of the spirit that you and I still have, but those who couldn't survive the pressure of that vice, they're now apathetic. Mm -hmm. They're either not joining the workforce or they're not rejoining as entrepreneurs, that type of mm -hmm. thing. Have you, have you experienced that? Yeah. I mean, you see apathy, you see depression. I mean, what's really happening is you see people experiencing the um, collateral damage of lockdowns and living in fear for a long time. And, you know, a lot of people had very fearful reactions to the pandemic. And I don't want to qualify what I'm saying. Um, people were afraid of different things. So mm -hmm. some people were terrified of COVID. 
Some people were terrified of killing grandma. Some people were terrified of losing their freedom. Some people were terrified of government overreach. So your reaction to the pandemic was largely influenced by what you were afraid of. So I was not afraid of killing grandma because grandma's already dead. Uh, and I don't see grandma. I don't live near my parents. I don't Yeah, they've been dead since I was like a kid. So, um, you know, I didn't worry about killing my neighbors because I didn't really know people. I didn't worry about getting COVID because I'm young and healthy. I didn't worry about that. I'm the one that worried about my freedom being curtailed. And I worried about government overreach. Um, and I also worried about my clients who are uh, small businesses. So with my marketing company, a lot of our clients were restaurants, but they got clobbered really, really hard. And a lot of those awesome people that were our clients for so many years, they couldn't, they couldn't afford us anymore. And everybody knows wrong or right. The first thing to go when things get tight is marketing. It's not how it should be. It's just how it is. And, you know, the thing that really hurt me is even while a lot of my clients really tried so hard to stay working with with us because they saw our value and they appreciated the relationship that we had for so many years and what we were doing for them. I saw how their spirits were being crushed when they were faced with unthinkable decisions and watching 25 years of their hard work go up in smoke and sometimes their businesses closed. And it was honestly heartbreaking. Like, like I, I stayed up at night just thinking about these people and like pacing my house being like, hubby, I can't believe what's going on with these people. And you know, they're, they're in pain and they're like trying to build these stupid plastic tents outside and it's costing them money. And they're trying so hard to like just survive and they're hemorrhaging. I don't know what they're going to do. And, you know, ultimately, you know, we lost a lot of business permanently and um, it was just really detrimental. And, you know, while a lot of their, um, a lot of those businesses were broken and died, there were a lot where people were really gritty and determined. And then there was also the rise of the people who, you know, finally got a taste of what it was like to have freedom. And once you let Pandora's secrets out of the box, they ain't going back in. Like, you know, it's like Dan Bongino likes to talk about the beach ball theory. You can only hold it down just so long. And it's like people yearn to be free. And once people had a taste of freedom and being able to see their children every day and all that other stuff, lots of entrepreneurs were born. So it was a bit of um, passing of the torch, if you will. Some people their businesses and their dreams died while other people's were brought to life. And it was just very interesting, but it all came from a collective trauma. It's interesting you put it that way. Uh, first, I need to say uh, th- the pandemic didn't affect us in the traditional way either because we were already remote work. We'd remote worked forever. So we actually traveled the entire United States and we didn't even get COVID until COVID was no longer actually a thing for most people. And it was last July. Um, my partner and I, we walked into a Ron White concert, the comedian, if you've ever heard of him. Uh, and yeah, we walked in and we looked around and said, shit, we're going to get COVID. <laughs> and sure enough, a week later we had COVID. Um, but not to minimize the, it, die. what was that? I said not to minimize it, but you didn't die. Yeah, no, agreed. We didn't die. Um, 
and I wasn't, I'm, and neither is she really. We're, we're not risk factors. I mean, obviously there was a potential for it, but we're not risk factors for it. Sure. Um, the, I took my turn. Good times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the collect, I, I, I liked your term collective trauma because I think that a lot of people don't, because we are such a product of the news cycle now, Mm-hmm. People, I think, lost sight of the collective trauma. It was affecting everybody in very different ways, right? Mm-hmm. You had the way it affected you and your people. It didn't actually affect us directly, but we did mm-hmm. see, for example, we run a conference. That conference happens to happen in New York. That conference hasn't happened in three years, yeah. right? We still won't go back to New York because of the infringement of freedoms that are there. Yeah, um, I actually decided to permanently boycott New York until they get new government. It's like, hmm, you actually think it's awesome to segregate people? We're done here. Screw you and screw your whole state. So when you say segregate, what do you mean by that? I mean, obviously, there's a traditional term, but who's getting segregated in New York? Well, for a while, and I don't believe this is happening anymore, but the unvaccinated were not allowed to do a lot of things. You can't go to concerts. You can't do this. You can't do that because you're part of the smellies. You're a vector. Whether you're sick or not, whether you're a risk or not, you're a vector. You're gross. We don't want you. I'm sorry, but I'm not going to be popular for saying this. I just don't care anymore. Well, how do you think the Holocaust got started? Was by convincing one class of people that the other class of people was sick and dirty and there was something wrong with them and a threat to the, to the first class of people. That's how it got rolling. You think Hitler was that compelling? No, his ideas began with fear and making one class of people unclean. I have always had a consistent problem with that. It's like, so we're just gonna openly discriminate now and we're gonna have a show me your papers society. So that's what we're doing. You wanna hand out yellow stars to the people who decided to decline a vaccine that may actually hurt them or maybe they're just not sure yet or maybe their doctor advised them against it. That's cool. You just wanna just, exclude these people. Even Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, she specifically came right out and she's like, yeah, we want to make their lives difficult. Awesome. Yeah. No, not for that at all. Okay. That's fair. And okay. I would say I had strong thoughts on the subject. They're not popular. So no, you know, so you, one here, the great thing here is one, you cannot offend me. That's number one. Number two, awesome. no, you can't. Um, which really drives Lindsay a little bit nuts, but our producer, but that's true. Uh, two, um, I wanted you on this call because in our world, I'm in the tech world and I'm specifically in the open source tech world, which has two, there's more, but basically two bulbs that are going like this all the time. Okay. One is that it's my generation. My generation of the open source folks are the libertarians, the Ron Paul. Even if you're not like devoted, you lean that way. Like I lean that way. I'm not a devoted. I'm a libertarian. Okay. And then I have the other side. The other side is the new side. And they're generally younger than I am. I'm going to be 50 in May. Uh, And Mm -hmm. they're essentially thugs. They're authoritarian thugs. They believe that the way Germany handled it was right. Um, I think it's somewhere in the middle. I agree with it. There should be no segregation. But I'll tell you, we had this disagreement on LinkedIn. There's a place where I disagree with you on that segregation. 100%, the government should not be able to say, you can't go somewhere because you're not vaccinated. 
you and I in concert will march with you all day long. Here's where we mm-hmm. don't agree. As an employer, I'm allowed to set who I want to hire. If I don't want to hire someone who's unvaccinated, mm-hmm. I don't need to. Now, if I don't remember if you recall, but I said that there was an interesting argument if you're a public company. I remember this because your comment really stuck out to me because most people I speak with, I tend to live in an echo chamber, one that I like, I'll be honest. You're in Florida. <laughs> yeah. Hello. <laughs> Hello, freedom. Like, yeah. Freedom and palm trees. Come on, nothing's wrong here, but... You know, I, mm, yeah, I remember your comment. It stuck out to me and we can definitely talk about it if you like. Yeah, I would, because I mean, we disagreed and nothing makes a great conversation except for two people that can disagree and still like each other at the end of it. Right. So, well, yes, exactly. And that thing is I'm one of those people we can disagree and talk about it and share ideas. And that's a healthy thing that more people should be able to do. So let's disagree, buddy. Bring it. (laughs) <laughs> All right. So if I remember correctly, you, as a part of your sovereignty argument, basically mm-hmm. said that just because someone's unvaccinated, you you shouldn't be able to say, I will not hire you or I can fire you for being un- unvaccinated. Is that an accurate mm-hmm. representation? Mm, it's a bit limited, but yeah. Oh, well, expand on it then. Sure. Um, I, as an employer... And I went through this, so I'm speaking from the firsthand experience. I, as an employer, do not own my employees' bodies. I, I don't even own their time. I rent it, and that's what's called a paycheck. So for me to assert that I have a right to tell them what to do with their own body in something that could hurt them is, I think, a huge violation of their human rights, their sovereignty and it's a major overreach of my authority and my role as an employer to provide them with a paycheck in exchange for services rendered it's not part of the original engagement and to change the terms of the contract midway through because there's a new thing it um it is to me it's it's completely overreach it's it's no different than the government trying to tell me that i have to do x y and z because i'm a citizen of the united states you know it's like you know employment is voluntary and if it's really that important that i have a um vaccinated only staff which it's not um there are accommodations that you can make for people you can let them work at home in a lot of different circumstances and there, you know in like manufacturing you can't but then there's also the other argument that um if the vaccines are working, why aren't they working? If masks work, why aren't they working? So it's kind of like, so I don't even know if this thing that I want you to have works or not and could potentially injure you. And I'm going to force you to do it at my behest and withhold paycheck, which is a change to the business terms that we've agreed to. Um, and it could hurt you. And I hold no liability. I get to ruin your life to me seems like a massive encroachment. I mean, it's a, I had an argument with, with um, my COO about this. I'm like, just so we're really clear, there will be no vaccine mandate at our company. And just so we can skip ahead to the future, there will also be no microchip mandate. There's a no on all of that sovereignty above all, figure it out. Like people get to make their own choices. So, okay. Tell so, me how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you to a certain extent, but, one, corporations have rights. That's number one. Number two, 
and this is where we get in this weird thing where, like I was saying, I was like, I kind of, if you're a public corporation where you have shareholders and it, I, I don't, I think that there's room there, but as a corporation who, for myself, I am the majority shareholder. I get to dictate yeah. the benefits, the pay, the, the, mm -hmm. you know, whatever time off. I, th those are dis determined by preferably my education, but let's be honest, sometimes it's whim. Okay. Uh, I'll give you an example, you know, as a way to, um, reduce tax liability. Last year, we introduced an internet connection allowance because you need an internet connection to work for us. So we'll just pay for it. It reduces our tax burden. It's not considered income for them. It's a win-win, right? But if I'm in a, and for us, it doesn't particularly matter because we all work from home. So it, I, it really doesn't matter if you are vaccinated or not. That's up to you. But if you're in a situation, take manufacturing. Your choice to as let's take the flu vaccine, okay? Let's forget COVID, just any vaccine. Your choice not to take the flu shot. Mm -hmm. You come to work and you give our entire line the flu because the flu mm -hmm. shot or the COVID vaccine does not have 100% efficacy, right? It essentially just reduces. <laughs> It is effectively, I mean, currently, <laughs> currently, I'm not sure that the vaccine, except in very specific circumstances, is useful to the general populace. It's an emotional um, at best. At, at best. <laughs> um, I, I'm a big fan of the antivirals. That's what I did. Uh, I was vaccinated. I still got COVID. Uh, and the antivirals, I mean. Yeah, look how well it worked. Yeah. <laughs> Which, the antivirals or the vaccine? Because the, the antivirals were, were great. Um, I mean, and, here's the other thing. Like, if the argument is incomplete without a couple things. One, God bless the U.S. government, fuckers. Um, there was no acknowledgement for natural immunity. We've known about it for millennia, but sat now it doesn't count because um, Pfizer stands to make money. Um, if you really want to get insistent, you know, we have to make sure that people are safe. Okay, then maybe you can't come to work until you've already had COVID and survived. So then we know that you have some protection and you'll be all right. And it's not our legal responsibility. Okay, maybe you could do that, you know, but to say, oh, you haven't been vaccinated and we know that it doesn't work for shit. Um, okay, like it's discriminating. We, we can't hire you because you're black. Like it's just, it's just discrimination just because people don't, don't like something. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay. it's just a feel really wrong. I, I get it. I, I'm not sure I agree 100%. I mean, I got a no, buddy that don't. works. <laughs> I got a buddy that um, actually okay, worked you don't. with I mean, you're the just trials. wrong. I mean, I can't fix that for you. <laughs> <laughs> love you anyway. Well, I love you too. So, okay. I actually, I, I'm going to pivot here because you brought something up. You said something really interesting. Okay. You're talking about sovereignty. Uh -huh. Um, we've talked about treating people right. You know, this is something I want to make very clear that, you know, I have a lot of friends that are on the left side of things and they oh, do right. have a, 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 this idea that only government can do it right. Even though the government's never done anything right. Um, it, it, it they, I, they I do have this idea night into my wine. I do. <laughs> I, I sit there is it red or white? Is, is it red or white? The wine? It depends on the day. It depends on the temperature outside, really. You know, if it's uh, really hot, we're going white. 
I'm not usually this punchy. I'm sober. I don't know what's happening yep. here. I'm just enjoying talking to you. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm glad you're enjoying it. I want to talk yeah. about the railroad strike. I don't know anything about it, so you can talk, and I can't be. I really can't comment. I just just okay. My, well, I'll give you head. the boil down. Okay. It, it, where this uh, comes about is because we talked about uh, sovereignty. We talked about everybody being able to be treated well, and that they should be able to, uh, you know, at least attempt to be more wealthy, enjoy their lives, those types of things. Okay. Recently, the twelve major unions of the railroads got together and said, "You treat us like shit." So we're going to strike because we want X, Y, Z. They wanted an increase in pay. They wanted, you know, this and that. Nothing that was unreasonable. Now, I'm not a big fan of the progressives, but I would have voted with them on this. What they wanted that mattered more than anything else was sick pay. They get no sick pay. The people, this is what people don't understand. All the people in the world that are buying from Amazon, that are getting every widget from every other country shipped across the ocean to the United States so you can have a bobblehead on your desk, it all gets delivered initially by freight. And usually that means a train. So mm-hmm. what we, what our, our president said is you will not strike because – People need to be wealthy. Now, he put it under the guise of, you know, we ship chemicals to treat our water. We do this. We do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And therefore, you will not strike and you will not get your sick pay. We're just going to accept this contract. So he overrode the will of the people so that railroad magnets, those who still exist, there's only four or five in the United States now, could continue to get rich. Under the guise of, and this is where you'll connect, the greater good and health. Oh, God. The greater good. Yeah, okay. First of all, that's the biggest piece of propaganda bullshit you're ever going to hear is the greater good. People need to read Ayn Rand. I'm just saying. So I actually appreciate you explaining this to me. Um, I haven't known much about it. And if it is what you've just described and it's unbiased, then... People should have sick pay. I mean, but also you shouldn't be suppressing people's right to protest or um, what's the word again? Um, strike. You know, like strike. People yeah, are. Strike. Yeah, it's like. I mean, it's a. You know, I, I, I'm I'm not doing this anymore because you're treating me unfairly. People have the right to strike, but also they have the right to sick pay. Like, I think it's important. Like, if you dedicate your life to a particular organization. Um, you should expect that they're going to take care of you if things go sideways for you. You know, I I mean, I think that that's important. So for me, uh, I I actually am generally anti-union. And that's normally because I end up dealing with a lot of hospitality unions and or teacher unions, both of which I think Mm -hmm. are not that useful and largely corrupt. Um, But in this particular situation, I was rooting for the unions. I was like, Hold on, you're, you're telling me that because I want a, a TV that I didn't go down to the store or whatever, right? I want a TV that just shipped across the country via freight. These people can't take time off to go get their tooth fixed without losing their pay. Have you seen the size of trains? Yeah. Right? I, mean, I mean, these are miles long. Assuming that your, all of your facts are correct my reaction, because this is literally the first I'm hearing about it, um, is I think that I'm inclined to agree with you just because there's merit in your argument. I mean, 
I'm at a disadvantage because I don't know the other sides of the argument. And I don't know the entirety of it. So unfortunately, I'm at the mercy of your bias. I think everybody's at the mercy of everybody's bias. <laughs> That's a really good point. You are correct, sir. <laughs> All right. Look, let's talk about sovereign ammo because, uh, sure. one, I am a Second Amendment supporter. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I have a six hour P365 in my, you know, in my bus. Uh, nice. And my partner has an SP 101. Uh, both are nine millimeters. Um, which uh, I disagree with you for focusing on that cartridge, but we can talk about that a different time or now. Why don't you start an ammo company? Then you get to tell me what to do. How about that? I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm suggesting there's a better path forward for profitability. That's all. And my opinion... kinds of arguments. (laughs) Yeah, my opinion would be anybody can get 9 millimeter. Not everyone can get 30-30. And... Everybody can get nine millimeter components. Not everybody can get 3030 components. And I can't build a business around something I can't access the materials to consistently. Now, that is a great point. Talk to me about that. What is the challenge in producing something that is not the common, you know, nine mil, what everybody buys? access to consistently available materials, number one, consistently priced materials, number two, reliable vendors. We're also the little guy. I mean, so there's the bottom of the totem pole and then there's the dirt underneath the fucking thing all the way in the ground. That's where we are. We're the new guys. (laughs) We're like underneath the bottom of the totem pole. We're like the scum on the bottom. We're trying really hard to get going and it's, you know, it's working out well, but you know, the, the, the truth of the situation is that we don't have this same access. You want to talk about like greater good. There's no greater good in this industry. There's no equal opportunity. It's screw you opportunity. Get what you can get, make what you can make. And that's the interesting thing about the industry that a lot of armchair quarterbacks, and I say this with love and a spark, um, want to assume is that it's all equal for all players. That is so wrong. It is not. We don't have access to the same pricing that the big guys have. We don't have access to the same materials. We can't make our own components. We just can't do that. So that means we're at the mercy of the industry and being the scum at the bottom of the totem pole underneath it in the, in the ground, those are our options. And in order for us to claw our way to the tippity top of the totem pole, we have to start somewhere. Do we want to offer those other things? Hell yeah, we do, of course. But it does not make sense for us to start there, which many people disagree with until we talk about it, because I can't consistently access things the way that we need to in order to bring the um, products to market at a reasonable rate um, that people will pay for because there's, you know, the laws, um, you know, um, supply and demand, and then that dictates the price and blah, blah, blah. And there's, you know, what the market will bear and what's going on with Biden and all his dumb shit. And there's a lot of external factors here, but it affects the whole supply chain to your point. And it it affects our ability to actually produce it. So let's say, hypothetically, I decide I want to do 380s. A lot of demand for that. Not as consistent access for us to be able to get the materials for that. We want to make them. We really do, right? In order for me to produce them at a rapid enough pace to have it out there consistently, I have to invest in three to four machines. 
I have to invest in people. I have to invest in new packaging. I also have to invest in a million of everything that I need in order to make a bullet. There's four parts. So I have to have drums of gunpowder that are appropriate for that. And I can't tell you if it's the same powder that goes in that as the nine millimeter. It might not be. You could ask my husband. He's the bullet maestro. But the primers, they're the same. Okay, fine. But the projectiles, those are different. I think the, the, I know for sure the brass is different and I don't know if I can consistently access those. So never mind. I could be sitting on four machines that just collect dust. I also could be sitting on packaging that doesn't do anything. I could experience a, a major shortage. So what we're doing is while we're taking incredible risk, getting into a very contentious business um, with a lot of difficulty and a lot of barriers to entry, a lot more than I anticipated, to be honest, um, we are choosing some of the low hanging fruit, which is we know there's established demand for the nine millimeter. We can make it really well. And in fact, we're heavily focused on the hollow point rounds and uh, the subsonic rounds. So these would be like the, the 124 hollow point, um, great round for personal protection. The 147 is um, subsonic. We're also doing um, the 147 and 124 in the, um, full metal jacket. And these are excellent rounds. They're not as common, but those parts are more readily accessible to us. So then we actually have a foundation for success. So once we build our foundation for success, after a couple of years, you best believe I'm doing a second round of funding and we're going to be 20, 30 Xing the company. And that's when I can get into that. I'll have more buying power. I'll also have the ability to get a hell of a lot more money. I'll have a great track record with my vendors. I won't be the new kid on the block anymore. And then I won't be the scum at the bottom. I'll maybe actually be at ground level or maybe an inch or two above and not sniffing dirt anymore. I'm like, who knows? Anything is possible, but you got to start so, somewhere. From, from this segment, this is what I've gotten. One, it's never as simple as the jarheads in whatever social media platform say that it is when they give you your opinion because they don't have all the facts. That's number one. And number two... True caste system still exists even in america oh yeah it does very much so and what it's really funny you say that because i had assumptions that i would be getting this class of problems when i started being involved with this business i ended up getting this class of problems i was expecting uh gender discrimination because women are not typically weapons manufacturers Okay, fine. I was expecting lots of sexism and all that other stuff. Nope, I have not gotten that. Instead, I just experienced the screw you, you're the new guy. And we don't like you because you're new and screw you. That's why it was like, oh, well, at least you're not discriminating against my gender. That's cool. Thanks. <laughs> Take a lot of opportunity. There's a lot. Bonus for that. Winning. <laughs> Killing it. All right. So... <laughs> As we start to round the, the corner here, let's let's talk about some of your professional development. You did write a book, and you said it's a best-selling book. What what does that mean? It means that it sold at the top of its category, even briefly. Um, so when a, a book is um, released, it's kind of like movies. You know, when you first release a movie, you want it to be really, really successful and like crush it at the box office. Um, with my book being um, a number one best-selling book, that means that it was a bestseller when it was released. It doesn't mean that it is a number one bestseller forever. Um, right. So when someone puts on the cover of their book, 
number one New York Times bestselling book, it doesn't mean that it was there in perpetuity. It means that it was there when it was released or it hit it once. So when I released my book on Amazon, it was a number one bestselling book. Um, I, I have to tell you, it's notably difficult to get on the New York Times bestseller list. It has nothing to do with book sales. It has everything to do with politics and who you know. Shocking. It's just the like anything system. Else. Oh, baby, it's alive and well. And you and I are the plebs. I just want to be clear <laughs> about that. We are the peasants. Okay. We be- we're lucky to have shoes. Thank you so much, sir. Like, <laughs> it's interesting. So I wrote my book, number one best-selling book, had a hell of a launch. People love the book, um, which brings me incredible joy. I've got a ton of five-star reviews on the book. Um, and I think I'm up to like 111, which you'd be like, that's not a ton of books. Yes, it is. As an independent author who isn't recognized nationally, and I'm not a New York Times bestselling author, 111 is a lot because for every hundred people that read the book, maybe one, maybe one will read, just leave a star rating, but to actually write reviews, that's like one in every 200, maybe one in every 250 because people don't care. There's nothing in it for them. Why would they do that? So for me to have this much positive impact, this much um, positive reception, I mean, people are now buying my books by the case and they're buying um, uh, gifts for others, which can I tell you absolutely warms the cockles of my heart because I wanted to share this book because I love people. I love seeing people be happy. I love seeing people truly sovereign and free of all the mental and generational and societal crap that we have to deal with. People deserve joy and love and you can have it all. It starts with your noggin. So that's what the book's about. Well, that's great. And and as a tip, I also am a published author. I wrote a book a long time ago, uh, back in 2000, 2001 uh, for Riley and Associates. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a long time ago. And I've also, before the, the great consolidation of media where, uh, you can really only publish articles, either sell, uh, you know, independently, or if you, someone knows you, who knows you, who wants your opinion. Right. Yeah. Um, I also, you know, I had a syndicate, a syndicated call and I wasn't syndicated, but a column called ask the geek and stuff like that. So I, I know the process. Um, how has the book, I mean, you said that it really warms you that you've been able to help people. How has your life changed since you discovered these six habits and, and what do these six habits provide? Um, so the life change is honestly massive. Um, I don't like who I used to be and I, think a lot of people also didn't like who I used to be. I was terrible to work for. I was unpleasant, unfriendly, ungrateful. Just, I sucked. If I'm being honest, I didn't even like myself. Hey, you know what? I, I feel good about myself. I love me. And I can say, you know, former me was in a lot of pain, big chip on my shoulder, took it out on everybody, found success because I beat myself into getting there. Like, man, that's not the way. And I was just, uh, you know, they say hurt people, hurt people. I was one of the hurt people hurting everybody. Um, And it's just, that's just not the way to live. So I retired at 37 from my first career. 
And then I kind of had a huge reckoning with myself and just realizing, wow, um, I suck. <laughs> like, it's, it's really important to be able to have that moment. And it was just a pivotal, like almost epiphany for me. I was like, wow, I suck. Not only am I not happy, but I don't appreciate anything I've done. I didn't make enough money because apparently all the money I made was not good enough. Um, all the awards I won, not good enough. My house wasn't good enough. You know, my ass wasn't small enough. I wasn't this enough. I just wasn't enough. Even though I'd achieved something that most people don't achieve, I still wasn't enough. And I was like, what kind of a bottomless pit crap is this? This is terrible. So what the hell am I doing wrong? Right? So, I mean, I had the epiphany, right? Didn't like how I was showing up in the world. Couldn't reconcile. Why the hell am I not happy? I did all the things. I retired early. I should be riding off in the sunset on my horse right now and thrilled and the end is the end credits roll and everything's wonderful. But that's not what happened. And I just, I got pissed, honestly, because once I had the epiphany and I realized, oh, this is all my fault. Neat. Um, I got <laughs> mad. Yeah. Epiphanies can do that to you. So I just, I felt like, well, if this is my fault, why the hell did I do this? And I got angry at the world and I got angry at myself and I got angry at society. Cause I was like, y'all taught me to do this. You didn't teach me the right way. Cause I still don't know what it is. So I got hell bent on finding a solution. Uh, you know, like what do happy people have in common? Cause whatever the hell it is, I don't have it. Um, what makes a person happy? And I just got inspired as hell because I was pissed off and I was sick of being my own enemy and I never saw it before but once I had the mirror in front of me I, I felt I guess I felt some shame you know I felt some shame and I was like this is ridiculous like I've achieved, achieved all these things I should be happy but I'm not so there's something wrong so I thought I was depressed no I thought I was whatever nope I was just a victim of societal conditioning which most of us I would argue we are um and I I just I saw other people being happy. So I was like, well, clearly there's a better way. Cause I, there are people out there who are genuinely happy and they don't even have much. So it ain't the money and it isn't this, it isn't that. Why are people happy? So then I figured, you know, figured it out. I started like studying human behavior and looking into scientific studies and lots of existing wonderful material that's out there. And, um, Boy, I gotta tell you, it was it was revelatory. Like my eyes were open, the heavens opened up, God smiled upon me, and I said, "Here you go, you little dirtbag. Here's the answer. Quit being a jerk. Go do it." So I got the answer, and it was basically, "You need to change your thinking because you can't just act like a happy person. You actually have to become one. And to become a happy person, you have to change your thinking because your thoughts shape your identity." but your thinking is habitual. Most of our thinking is habitual. We're having, I think on average of like 65,000 thoughts a day, 85% of which are negative and repetitious from the previous day. Dude, that's a lot. So I was like, okay, well, how are habits formed? I'm telling you, I went down the rabbit hole all the way down to the bottom. And I learned it's habits of the mind. They're mental habits. They can be created. It takes about 66 days, according to science, to do it, not the catchy 21 or 30 days that everybody wants to tell you because marketers are liars. Sorry, I say this as the owner of a marketing company. I'm aware of what my... What my Thank you for your do. honesty. Uh, hey, I do what I can, man. I'm here for you. So, you know, I was just like, all right, if I'm going to actually crush this and be 
the happy person that I know that other people can be, I'm going to do this. And since I had the freedom, I dedicated my time and my life to it. And so for 90 days, I re shaped all my thinking by living the way a happy person would live for 90 days, way before it felt comfortable. So I created this 90 day program for me. Ultimately I created the program. I really had to clean it up because my version was ugly. Um, so I made a nice one for other people. So it's like, Hey, you want to not be a miserable loser? You can do this too. Just change your thinking. Here you go. Here's the recipe. But then the book was written actually because I wanted to share this 90 day thing with like eight people in my life, eight. And I was like, let me just write a little bit for you. You've read my LinkedIn. I am loquacious. Okay. I am a long winded. I can tell you all the things. I mean, Jesus, how long I've been talking now for like two minutes and you haven't gotten a word in edgewise. Like I'm just wordy. So I'm like 25,000 words in and I'm just like, dude, this, this, this could be a book. How long are books? 50,000? Screw it. I'm going for it. I'm going to affect more than eight people. I'm going to affect the world. More people can be happy. So then the more I decided to go for it, the more I was like so energized and inspired and like excited about what was possible. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. So not only am I happy, ha ha. Other people can be happy. I mean, I can help moms and dads raise happier kids. I started to get so excited about like the potential for my work and, and this incredible gift that I was given. And the more excited I got, the more I wanted to do it. And then the TED talk came and now I've got reviews where people are telling me they're no longer suicidal. So yeah, it's a very long story, but it's an awesome one, I think. <laughs> so one let me say this just for PSA and disclaimer. If you adopt these six habits, it does not guarantee success. However, you have a much better chance at being happy. Would that be an accurate well, success statement? Is a, it's, a, it's a variable term. I mean, some people define success as a career or financial achievement where others like myself would be, do you feel fulfilled? And do you feel as though your life is a reflection of what you hold most dear? And you know, I would argue that if you do the work to adopt the six habits um, and make them part of who you are, you will get the kind of success I just described to you. It's not about money. That's very specifically not the point. You'll probably get more of it because you'll learn to advocate for yourself and you'll believe in yourself and you'll do all those things, you know? So I want to circle back to this whole sovereignty thing. Okay. Um, God, that was corporate speak. Gross. Let's circle back. Um, <laughs> action item. <laughs> oh my God. Pin this one. Um, put a pin in it. Oh my God. I'm sorry. I'm just going to go off the deep end, but like the subject of sovereignty is, um, you know, I, I think we really didn't get to talk about it, you know, as much as we wanted to before mm -hmm. to be sovereign is really to be in your power as someone who's free, but also responsible. And I think that one of the biggest disconnects we have socially, you know, and politically is we've come to misunderstand. You want to talk about misinformation to misunderstand that sovereignty is selfishness and it's not what is selfish is all your freedom and to hell with everybody else. That's sovereignty is freedom plus responsibility and without the responsibility, then you are just selfish and that's just crappy. So you know, our children are not prepared because our parents are not 
prepared and you know our parents are not they're not equipped you know like my parents were kind of equipped right but they tried to push me to go to college to get a degree because they wanted the best for me because they were brainwashed into thinking that was the best thing even though they were both entrepreneurs they you know they just that's the way things were right so there's like i think there's a huge um i guess disconnect between what we as society can do to educate the next generation better but also to re-educate the current generation you know the you's and the me's of the world into being truly responsible accountable safe reliable but also free you know like our um you know our community we just don't know how to do that and to to be able to re-educate people um we need to first destigmatize and actually define it correctly you know what i'm saying okay, like so- you, you can't you can't understand something and, and want to learn about it if you don't define it correctly so we start there so what is your so I mean, you said that we are free, but sovereign, we're also responsible. Mm-hmm. What is that? Does that mean, okay, actually, this is a great, because you brought this up. Here is um, the common way that certain individuals, leaders, will attack firearms mm-hmm. is to in, write a law, whatever the law is. The law is you can't have magazines bigger larger than say 10 bullets okay you can't well, like, you know they're trying to ban more than around <laughs> <laughs> well or my favorite is you know and, and this is a great i i have to admit, I really enjoy the manipulation here um because the manipulation's on both sides and when we're talking about the ar-15 okay mm-hmm. manipulation one the ar-15 is an assault weapon okay first off they're guns they're all assault weapons Two. A toaster is an uh, assault weapon. Go on. Say, what was that? I said a toaster is an assault weapon. Uh, in the hands of the right woman? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I would never throw a toaster, right? I'm more of a microwave guy. Um, you could get treated. I could take this chapstick and push this into your eye socket, and now we have to ban Burt's Bees. You know what I'm saying? Well, you know what? That's actually a great point because our producer, Lindsay, the lovely Lindsay, lives in New York and they have to register their pepper spray. That's how ridiculous New York is. You have to register your pepper spray. Now, that being said, um, so they attack. So the AR-15. Now, first off, I think the AR-15 personally for me is a ridiculous weapon. There's it. it, But that doesn't mean I don't think people should be able to own it or not be able to own it. Um, mm-hmm. but what I find interesting is the AR-15 isn't actually all that powerful of a firearm, mm-hmm. but they go after it. And I'm, I'm getting dark here because it's actually getting dark. And I, let me see if I can light this up a little bit. Um, so that's number one. They basically, they find a common enemy. Oh, there we go. We're doing the, the, the ghost story now. Ooh. Tell me a story, um, story, dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that old. Um, (laughs) uh, so there's number one. And then there's the other side where you have these individuals who like to put on Mm -hmm. their fake military gear and carry their AR-15s 
down in front of peaceful protesters or not peaceful protesters. Either way, it doesn't matter. So you get two sides of the problem here, right? You get the people that never learned that it's okay to be civil. And then you get the other people that just want to control you all the time in the vein of keep people safe. And the problem here, this is the part that people forget. Oh, not every, but almost every gun law does not penalize someone who's a criminal. It penalizes someone who's not. Right. Do me a favor and follow up on that. Can you follow up on that? As someone who's an ammunition manufacturer, you have a direct vested interest in educating people on that problem. Absolutely. Um, yeah, people always want to blame the tool, but I mean, I'm pointing out the ridiculousness of the Burt's Bees being shoved into your eye socket. What, are we going to ban lip balm now because someone decided to abuse something and use it for something other than its intended purpose? I mean, yes, I mean, I, I'll be the first one to tell you that firearms require incredible responsibility, safety, um, and expertise to use them correctly and, you know, with regard and respect for life and other people. Um, but it's not a, man, this pisses me off. It's not gun violence. It's just violence. Fix the person. Stop treating the damn symptoms. Why does your stomach hurt? Oh, here's some Pepto. Remember the school nurse gave you Pepto for everything? It's like, oh, you have an ulcer. We'll just have Pepto doesn't get rid of the ulcer. You can get rid of all the guns in the world. Uh, you're still going to have a violent society because we are violent people. Fix that. And that, that was the whole basis of the whole thing that I posted about on LinkedIn earlier. Um, you have to actually address the root cause of every problem. If your tummy hurts, find out why it hurts and fix that. You know, don't take Pepto. Like, oh, does your head hurt? Are you getting ocular migraines? Are you getting this? I mean, you know, lots of people, we live in a shortcut society that has trained us to treat symptoms and think we're done. That is incorrect, lazy thinking. And, you know, people on all sides of the argument, I want to be very clear, they get upset when children are shot and adults are shot and senseless violence happens. Of course, any good, sane, normal person would. But where it starts to become a bit ineffective is when people are like, yeah, do something. There's a lack of specificity to the something, you know, ban guns. Yeah. Except the people who have them illegally don't care about your laws and they're still going to have them. You sure you want to disarm the good guys? Sure. You want to do that? I don't think you thought this through. Like, you know, there was a, a gentleman, I use that term loosely, uh, a guy who drove a car into a crowd of people last year. Remember that? So now the news is like, oh, yeah, you know, there was a car that drove into a bunch of people. No, there was a person who drove an automobile into a crowd of people. There was a person that used a weapon that shot the kids in Uvalde. There was, um, you know, this guy that beat the crap out of his wife with his fists. We are violent people. We have a problem psychologically as a society. You can ban whatever you like. It's not going to fix anything when you start looking at why people are violent and make people feel better so they don't need to be violent, then you'll see violence go down. But nobody wants to talk about that except me. I'm here for that conversation. So I want to talk about fatherless homes, bullying, domestic abuse, poverty, um, you know, 
there's there's even there like I, I know the it's the major left talking about social inequity, but it should be something that's everybody's talking point because it does happen, it does piss people off, it does create bullying, it does make people angry. And when you piss people off and you make them angry and you hurt them, they get mad and they do bad stuff when they break. You can't break people. That's why people do bad shit like this. And sometimes they're broken when they're very little. And they're like a year or two old because they're victimized when they're little or they break when they're adults. There's bullying in the workforce. There's bullying on social media. We live in a really ugly, nasty world. That's the conversation no one wants to have. It's not about the guns, knives, fists, cars, toasters, lip balm. It doesn't matter. It, it matters that we are not okay. We are the furthest thing from okay. And until we can talk about that and fix that, yeah. The other conversations are just not relevant. They're just noise. And they're just propaganda. Make sense? It absolutely does. And I'm going to close out with this. Uh, one, the propaganda is real. And if you're on yep. Twitter or you're on Facebook and you are in, or even if you get all your news from one outlet instead of six, you are the product and they are lying to you. Number one. Number That's two, so right. I believe... Uh, I believe that it should be at least as difficult to legally own a firearm as it is to drive a car. That being said, once I take my training back off, I'm allowed to buy whatever I want. And then lastly, let us remember that the top 10 most violent cities in the United States are also those with the strictest gun laws and they don't work. So the next time you want to blame guns, Nothing's more dangerous than a gun-free zone. That's exactly right. Um, so the next time you want to blame guns, instead, let us take a step back and actually consider whether or not we're willing to fix the problem. And that problem is things like how do we help have better health care, better mental health care especially? How do we have uh, addiction services? How do we, as a community, right, Florida's not my community, so I can't directly help here, but say Washington State, which is, how can, as a community, we help make sure that the young people that are coming up are coming up in an educated way that allows them to prosper so they don't need to feel like they need to turn to bullying to have a self-esteem or to take drugs to escape the reality of their abusive parent or whatever the case may be. Those are the mm -hmm. conversations Amen, that we brother. should be having. And until we do, yes. we will continue just to listen to authoritarians telling us to Netflix and chill. And with that, this has been More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. This podcast is hosted by JD, Command Prompt Founder and Postgres Conference Chair, and is produced by me, Lindsay Hooper, Director of Events at Command Prompt Inc., Command Prompt provides Postgres support, professional services, custom development, and community leadership. Since 1997, we've focused on providing just excellent service, custom tailored to your organization's needs. We'll see you soon, wherever you get your podcasts.